Well, if you have a Bible, open it up to Romans chapter 12. That's where we're going to be this morning. Romans chapter 12, verses 14 to 21. So coming down to the end of Romans 12. Start by sharing with you an experience from my college days. Uh, When I was finished with my junior year, between my junior and senior year of college, I went to work at a camp in upstate New York. Great family camp where families like many of you would come with their kids for the week to get away from uh, the stress of work and just take a vacation. Enjoy being in the middle of the Adirondack Mountains and on the lake and also would listen to some great uh, teachers and things along those lines, and they had a big staff to take care of the families that would come. And I was uh, on a couple of different staffs while I was there. I was on the music staff. I played saxophone and keyboard, and then I also waited tables. Uh, But one of my responsibilities while I was there was to lead worship at the chapels that they held for the staff once a week. There were about 300 high school and college students who were responsible to maintain this camp. And so I led worship for this group. And when I first got there, the very first week that I arrived, I stood up to start leading in worship. And I did much like Tim did this morning. I said to everybody, all right, y'all stand up and let's sing. And uh, after I said that, everybody stood up, but some people started laughing and nudging each other and giggling. And I thought, well, this is offensive to me. Uh, We're about to sing worship to God and they're laughing. What's wrong with these people? This is supposed to be a Christian camp. And then as these thoughts ran through my head, uh, I realized the reason they were laughing had nothing to do with the song. It was because I used the word y'all. And uh, most of the staff were from New York and the regions surrounding that. Now, they thought that y'all was funny. Of course, this is a region in which many of them use used guys, which is even more ridiculous <laughs> than y'all. I mean, let's say as a second person plurals go, y'all is much better than used guys. But they were laughing at me. And it was at that moment I thought, I want to be an ambassador for Texas while I'm here. And a good ambassador. So while I was there, I I did some things like uh, taught them what salsa really was, right? For them, spicy meant putting like a bell pepper in tomato paste. And that's not spicy, right? So I made them some real Texas salsa. I talked to them about all of our uh, dialects. I did tell them we don't all ride horses. And that was a disappointment to some. Uh, But I decided I'm going to be an ambassador for Texas while I'm here in the middle of this strange and hostile environment, all right? That was my personal task that I was going to take on. And uh, some of them decided later even to visit Texas. Even a few of them settled in Texas because they saw the light, right? And I experienced on a very small scale what it feels like to live as an alien and stranger in a somewhat hostile environment, Now, that feeling is a feeling that as Christians in this world, we often experience to a greater degree. If you align yourself with the values of God as expressed in Jesus Christ, if you align yourself with the truth of the scripture, with values like purity in your body and integrity and truthfulness, And you align yourself with Jesus Christ and the fact that he died and rose again. You will, at times, experience hostility. 
It isn't a secret that we live in a world that is fallen and is broken and is often hostile to the message of the gospel. Just one example, about a week and a half ago, I ran across an article about a large journalism conference for high school students. There were about three or 4,000 high school students there. And for the speaker, they brought in a man named Dan Savage. Some of you may have read this article. And Dan Savage is one of the nation's experts on bullying. He is an anti-bullying expert. And that's his platform. He travels around the country and talks about how to squish bullying and how to deal with it. Well, Savage got up and as he began to make his speech, he started talking about bullying. And in the process of that, he began to talk about the Bible and he began to insult the Bible saying we can ignore all the stuff in the Bible about this and this and this and this because it's outdated. And he insulted the Bible in terms that I cannot even say this morning if I wish to keep my job. And most of the students applauded and cheered. 20 or 30 of these high school students got up to walk out quietly. And as they walked out, he started calling them names that I can't repeat here this morning. And he finished his tirade and he said to them out in the hall, you Bible people can come back in. I'm done beating up your Bible now. What's the message? Don't bully anybody unless they align with Jesus, right? Now we hear a story like that and what happens? We want to defend ourselves, right? Uh, Let's get him. Let's hurt him. And we begin to respond in anger and frustration that the world around us doesn't align with our values. And as we've looked at the book of Romans, interestingly, we see that the book of Romans is written to a group of people who were experiencing a very similar conflict, except to a much greater degree. These were men and women who were living in a world that was not only passively hostile to the gospel, didn't just verbally mock them, but eventually actively persecuted them. And many of the men and women at the Church of Rome had experienced the loss of their jobs, the seizure of their property. Eventually, under Nero, they experienced death as a result of their testimony for Jesus Christ. The Emperor Nero was well known later on for using Christians as torches at his garden parties. And so Paul is writing to these men and women. And as you've walked through the book of Romans, one of the things that's become clear is the theme of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God. What does God's righteousness look like and how has he expressed it toward humanity? And we've seen that one of the greatest things about God is how he has granted us his righteousness in Jesus Christ. That although we are unrighteous, Jesus fulfilled the righteousness of God, fulfilled all our obligations. He died on a cross to pay the penalty for our failure to meet God's righteousness and rose again. That's been Romans in a nutshell. And as we've gotten into chapter 12, the idea of chapter 12 is, all right, now that you've been given the righteousness of God, how do you live that out practically? The Spirit of God lives inside of you. How do you reflect Jesus Christ to a world that needs to know about him? And in this section of Romans 12, in particular, Paul tells these people, you are in a hostile environment to the gospel. How do you reflect the righteousness of Jesus in that environment? What does it look like to live out and work out your salvation when somebody insults you for your testimony of Jesus Christ, when somebody takes away your property, when somebody takes away your job, 
when you experience conflict with family or at work or at school. And many of you experience this on a regular basis. How do you respond? And what's interesting is that the answers that Paul gives us are counterintuitive. They are not our natural response because, again, our natural response when we are insulted or mocked or persecuted is to lash back. And yet Paul says we're called to do just the opposite. And he walks through in Romans 12, 14 to 21, a few principles of how you and I are supposed to respond in the middle of a culture and a world that is hostile to Jesus Christ and do so in a way that reflects Jesus to the world around us so they can see who he is, so they can see his mercy and grace. And the way we're called to respond is very different from the way we often are tempted to respond. All right, so let's look at Romans chapter 12 and see how do we, how do you and I respond to reflect the light of Christ in a world that is hostile toward him. The first thing Paul says is this, bless your enemies, bless your enemies. Verses 14 to 15, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. All right, to bless another person simply means I'm going to ask God to grant his favor on that person's life. Okay, so if I bless you, that means I come before God and I say, God, I pray that you would give this person harmony within his family. I pray that you would protect this person's health. I pray that you would bring this person a strong relationship with you. I pray that you would provide this person financial security. That's to bless another person. Right? To curse another person would be just the opposite. To say, God, I pray that they'd have a hard life. That their kids would be sick. Their bank account would be empty. Their skin would be covered in boils, whatever it may be. Right? That's to curse. Now, Paul is taking his cues from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Luke chapter 6 that Johnny just read a few moments ago. Jesus says, you've heard it said, uh, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. So Jesus gives us what is really conventional wisdom, right? You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. If you're nice to me, I'll be nice to you. If you try to trample me down, I'm going to trample you down. That is the way of our world. It's natural because we want the scales to balance out. And yet what Paul says and what Jesus says is this. No, you do just the opposite. You act in a way that is radically different from the way anybody would normally act. You bless when you are cursed. You pray for them when they persecute you. Who's the preeminent example of this behavior, Jesus Christ, as he is dying on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Paul says, by doing so, you will reflect the character of Jesus to a watching world. Now, one of the questions that comes up when we talk about this then is, well, what about those uh, imprecatory psalms is what they're called, you know, where uh, you go to the Old Testament and you see somebody praying for the destruction of God's enemies. For example, Psalm 109. Let me just read a little bit of it. David talking about one of his enemies. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. 
May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. Now, if you ask me, if I'm gonna choose a prayer for my enemies, it's that one, right? Let me use that one for my devotionals in the morning. Not blessing those who persecute me, right? God, cut them off. Let their children be poor, wander around in ruins, all that stuff. That's what I want. Okay, so why do we see that in the Old Testament? And yet here, when we see the teachings of Jesus and Paul, we see something very different. Bless those who persecute you. Okay, because between the time of David and the time of Paul, something happened. And what is that? God sends his only son into the world to die for sinners. David is operating in a period of time where he's acting as the king and the representative of the nation of Israel, God's people. And so the enemies of the nation of Israel are God's enemies. And so David is asking God to protect the nation of Israel by striking down his enemies. He is calling upon the wrath and the justice of God. Now, is God still just and wrathful and will he be again? Absolutely. You turn to Revelation 19 and you see Jesus coming back in the very end with a sword coming out of his mouth and a robe dipped in blood and he slaughters his enemies and then he says, all right, birds, come and eat the flesh of God's enemies. We don't put that on the flannel board in Sunday school, right? But God is just and God is wrathful. And yet in between the time of David and the time of Jesus and Paul, The son of God enters into the world. And so now we live in a day and age in which God has thrown his arms wide open and is extending mercy to all who will believe in Jesus Christ. And so in light of that, Jesus and then later Paul both say, what your task is, is not to take vengeance, not to curse, but instead to pray that God will bring them to reconciliation with himself. Through Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do. It's interesting. uh, I read an article a few weeks ago about a lawsuit that happened in this country. Basically what happened, a, a chaplain with the armed forces, he prayed publicly an imprecatory prayer towards some of his enemies. There was a group of Jewish men and women who didn't believe in the gospel or the Bible and they were harassing this guy in some way. So he stood up and he publicly prayed Psalm 109. Well, this Jewish group over here sued him saying he was inciting violence against them. He said he wasn't. The court ultimately ruled with the guy who prayed the imprecatory prayer saying you can pray that as long as you don't specifically tell people to go hurt them. All right, so you'll be glad to know this morning, you want to use Psalm 109 for your devotional, have at it, right? It's legal. (laughs) Question is, is it right? And the answer in this time and this day is no, because we await God's future justice. And right now we're called to extend his blessing and mercy. Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's a reference to, to these enemies. 
doesn't mean that you rejoice when they're doing evil. Instead, it means this. When God showers his blessings upon them, when their kids are healthy, when they are healthy, when they have money in the bank, when they're happy, you rejoice with them. When bad things happen to them, you weep with them. Now, why is that? It's because your prayer is that God will so shower his blessings upon those men and women that they will look up and see the goodness of God and come to him for eternal life. And so for you and me, the question is, how will we respond to that professor who mocks our faith? How will we respond to that coworker or employer who treats us like a second-class citizen because of our stand for Jesus Christ? How will we respond when we go home and perhaps our family doesn't share our faith and they ostracize us? Do we bless or do we curse? Do we rejoice when they rejoice and weep when they weep and pray that God would lavish his goodness upon them? Why? Because God lavished his goodness upon me while I was still an enemy of him. Romans 5, 8, just a few chapters back, God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I was hostile to him and he gave me his son. And so we pray for God's enemies to become God's friends. So Paul says we bless our enemies. And then in the midst of that, he says we love like Jesus. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. All right, Paul turns now from talking about our relationships with the outside world. Instead, he begins to talk about our relationships with one another. And uh, this is a challenging little verse inserted in here. uh, And many commentators struggle with how does this fit in with what Paul's talking about? And here's the issue. The issue is this, that in the middle of a hostile culture, the strongest way that we can testify to the love of God given in Jesus Christ is actually to love one another. This is what the early church did. If you look at Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47, for example, they gave their possessions and shared them. They took care of each other when they were sick. They loved each other in a way that was supernatural. They weren't divided about things like what color the pews ought to be or which songs they ought to sing. Instead, they set aside their rights and served one another. Jesus said that unity among believers is one of the strongest and most consistent ways in which we can display that we're his disciples. John 13, 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And the apostles and the early church took that seriously. Yeah, we live in a culture where, and in a world where we want to insist on our rights, don't we? I mean, our country is really founded on the idea of Uh, personal rights. If somebody violates my personal rights, I'm going to smash them. That's where we live. And we live in a world that the basic mindset is this. If you are stronger or more powerful or wealthier or more prestigious and you can get away with it, you should. If you can take a right that you think belongs to you, take it. I'll never forget several years ago when I was in high school, uh, maybe more than several, but back when I was in high school, uh, I went to uh, another camp during the summer and uh, this was a band camp. I played saxophone and uh, here was the interesting thing was somebody had the 
idea of putting the band camp at the same facility as the football camp for this week. Uh, it's like the king of bad ideas, right? They, they put us all together. We had to share the dining room. We had to share these dorms. And so, as you know, there was tension between these two groups. And one day I'm standing in line with some of my friends and there's this girl in front of me. Her name is Lauren. And Lauren is one of these girls that is not shy about speaking her mind. And as we're going through the line, uh, a very tall, very muscular, big man stands right in front of her, cuts in line and begins to get his food. And uh, he's probably, I don't know, 6'4", 275 pounds, something like that. And uh, Lauren is about five foot tall, standing on a box and 92 pounds soaking wet, right? She looks up at this guy and she goes, excuse me, you cut. And uh, this guy turns around and uh, I was standing behind Lauren, behind Lauren. And when he turned around, I saw it. it was a guy named Jay Novacek who happened to be a tight end for the Dallas Cowboys at the time. Turned around, looked at her kind of smiled and turned back around and kept getting his food. And uh, we sat down and we laughed at her. We said, do you, do you know uh, who that was that you uh, just yelled at in the line? And she goes, now she didn't know a thing about football. So that was part of her response. But she goes, I, I don't care who he was. He shouldn't cut in front of me, right? That was her response. And I think of that whenever I think, you know, that is the way of the world though, isn't it? If you're bigger, you're stronger, you're more powerful, you claim your rights. That's what we're taught to do. I'm going to share with you the words of that deep philosopher, Bob Marley. Um, <laughs> says this, get up, stand up, stand up for your rights. Get up, stand up, stand up for your rights. I'm not going to read it all the times he says it. We'll be here a while. Uh, Preacher man, don't tell me heaven is under the earth. I know you don't know what life is really worth. It's not all that glitters is gold. Half the story has never been told. So now you see the light, eh? Stand up for your rights. Come on, get up, stand up, stand up for your rights. Most people think great God will come from the skies. Take away everything, make everybody feel high. But if you know what life is worth, you will look for yours on earth. And now you see the light. You stand up for your rights. Ja, get up, stand up, stand up for your rights. We sick and tired of your ism schism game, dying and going to heaven in a Jesus name, Lord. We know when we understand almighty God is a living man. You can fool some people sometimes, but you can't fool all the people all the time. So now we see the light. What are you going to do? We're going to stand up for our rights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. That is the mindset of our world, isn't it? Don't let anybody take from you what is rightfully yours. And yet what Paul says is this. No, You be unified and love one another as Christians. He uses the same phrase in Philippians 2, right before he goes into the description of how Jesus humbled himself. Although he was equal to God, he lowered himself to die and to die on a cross. And then God exalted him. He says, you be of the same mind. Don't be haughty or proud. Associate with the lowly. Set aside the conception that you're something special. Because you are powerful, because you are talented, because you think you're morally superior. Set aside that, associate with those you see to be inferior, right? Never be wise in your own sight. You don't have to flash your Mensa card to everybody who introduces themselves, right? You don't have to tell everybody your IQ number or show them all your diplomas, Paul says the way of the world is to do that. The way of Jesus Christ is to say, I'm going to serve in obscurity. 
even when nobody's watching, even when nobody will reward me for it. What that means here is in the body of Christ, at times we set aside what we would want, our preferences and desires for the sake of those around us. Maybe it is you say, you know, I'm not a big fan of the songs that we're doing today, but for the sake of those around me who are worshiping God, I'll set that aside. Maybe it is I'd like to sit and just always have my needs met in the service, but maybe God is saying, go serve in the nursery, right? When that little 555 comes up. Maybe it is that in some way you set aside your rights and you give of what God has given you to demonstrate to the world around us the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says that's one of the most powerful ways we testify to his grace in the midst of a hostile world. And thirdly, he says, resist the urge to take revenge. Don't take revenge. Verse 17, the first part of verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. And then down in verses 19 to 20, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Our temptation, when those around us are persecuting for the sake of Christ or mocking our faith or not buying into it or ostracizing it, our temptation is to take revenge. Be honest, most of us have lain awake at night trying to think of what we would do if we had the opportunity to take revenge on our enemies, haven't we? I can still remember a bully from junior high, and he bullied lots of people, not just me, but when it's you, it feels like it's particularly you. I can still remember a moment in where this guy stood in front of me with a bunch of people around and made fun of my clothes. So those are the ugliest pants I've ever seen. And people began to laugh, and it wasn't that big a deal, right? If someone says that to me now, I'm like, all right, I won't wear these again, you know, whatever. But when you're 12, it's a different story, isn't it? And I remember that happening. And as the Lord worked in my life over the years, I'm able to forgive those sort of things. But I will say this, still to this day, when I see this guy's picture on Facebook, there's that immediate response to say, I hope you die sad and alone, right? (laughs) Okay, that is the natural response. And what Paul says is, no, don't take your revenge, Don't do it in your mind. Don't do it with your body. Instead, you leave room for the wrath of God. Forgiveness means I set it aside. And I allow God to deal with it in his timing. And instead, what I'm called to do in this day and age, right now, is to extend them mercy. He says, love your enemy. When they're thirsty, give them a drink. When they're hungry, give them food. Serve them. And in doing so, you'll heap burning coals on their head. Now that that always strikes us as a little weird because you read that and he says, don't take revenge. And then you're like, okay, I guess. And then he says, heap burning coals on their head. And you're like, all right, I like the burning coals part, right? Comes back in right there at the end. Uh, He's not saying that loving them is another way of taking revenge. Instead, here's what he's getting at. Uh, Actually, there was a ritual that the Egyptians would practice and was practiced throughout the ancient Near East where uh, when somebody wanted to repent of their sin, they would put a pan of hot coals on their head to feel the heat to remind them of the shame of their sin. 
And so when we love and we act in stark contrast to the values of the world around us, what we're doing is we are allowing people an opportunity to understand where they fall short. And then to do what? To turn for forgiveness and mercy to the grace of God. He says, yeah, you want justice? God's concerned about justice as well. Leave room, literally, for the wrath of God, for the vengeance of God. God will take care of it in his timing. Meanwhile, you love and serve and you pray that they'll come to know God. There's a story about Abraham Lincoln. During the Civil War, he gave a speech to a group of his supporters in the North. And in the course of that speech, he talked about the Confederate armies and those who had aligned themselves with the Confederates. And he said, you know, they are to be pitied. They have erred but it's not our goal to wipe them out and destroy them for good. And after the talk, a woman came up to him and she said, Mr. President, how can you say that they are not enemies to be destroyed? Look at what they've done. We should destroy these enemies. Famous quote from President Lincoln, he said, don't I destroy my enemies when I make them my friend? That's what God has done for you and me in Jesus Christ. He was within his rights to wipe us out. And yet the way he chose to destroy his enemies was to make us his friends. And so Paul says, don't take vengeance. Leave room for the wrath of God. But in the midst of that, you pray for them. That they'll come to know him. They'll come to trust him and receive mercy. Don't take revenge. And then finally, pursue a life of excellence and honor. Verse 17 Second half of verse 17, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And then verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, you and I are called to live a life of such excellence and such integrity and such character that the watching world looks on and they say, there is something supernatural going on in that person's life. And I want to know what's behind it. And so give attention to those things that all people view as good. There are still certain values that even our broken world sees as good. Integrity, kindness, honesty, mercy. And you give attention to those things rather than spending time on revenge and hatred and anger. And he says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, notice the double qualification there. Paul recognizes it's in a perfect world. But as much as it depends on you, if it's possible, live at peace with everybody. Try to keep things peaceable. Don't be the person always looking for a fight. Don't be the one that everybody has to walk on eggshells every time you're around because you're going to take offense at the littlest thing. Somebody calls it revelations instead of revelation, right? You punch them in the face. Don't be that person. We have another toddler. We have a toddler in our house right now. It's our third one. And every time we go through this phase, I remember again that toddlers, man, they're always looking for a fight, right? They're always ready to push back. You say, let's go to the car. I hate the car. The car is terrible, right? (laughs) Let's go in the house. I love the car. I want to sit in the car, right? Put on your shoes. I hate those shoes. I want to wear the green shoes. Let's go outside. I want to be inside. Let's go inside. I want to be outside. It doesn't matter. The default position of a toddler is no. 
right? And after a while, what happens? You just go, man, just, just be reasonable, right? <laughs> just say yes to something, okay? Here's a cookie, right? Just say yes to that, something, okay? What Paul is saying is that some of us as adults, we may not be that blatant, but we're still like that. You're ready, right? You're prickly. You're waiting for a fight. Paul says, no, if there's going to be conflict with the world around you, don't let that conflict be because of you. As much as it is possible, you live at peace with everybody. Don't be overcome with evil, overcome evil with good. Again, that idea of the way to destroy an enemy is to pray that God will lavish them with his love and his mercy and his grace so they'll turn to him for forgiveness. And in the meanwhile, you live a life of such integrity and joy and honesty and love that it can only come from Jesus Christ. This is a different and supernatural and radical way to live. And it is very counterintuitive, even for many of us as Christians, because our temptation is to get very offended and angry when people don't value what we value. But the exhortation that Paul provides is this. You focus on knowing Jesus. You focus on reflecting his mercy. Let me take care of the wrath and the justice. And he will. So the question for each of us then as we close is this. How are you and I doing at being the sort of gracious, humble, servant-hearted men and women that Paul calls us to be? At your office, in your classroom, with your family, in your dorm, in your neighborhood, are you known as a gracious person? Are you known as an individual who reflects mercy and love that comes from Jesus Christ? The answer, honestly, for most of us many times is no. True of me. and Probably true of many of us in here. So the only solution is that we come before God and we ask for power from his spirit to do what we can't do to reflect him well and it may be that you're here this morning and you don't yet know that you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ it may be uh, that you have not yet experienced the grace and the mercy of God and the only way to be able to extend it to others is to first experience it yourself and so the message for you is this that in Jesus Christ you have love and mercy and grace offered to you that's different from anything you could ever get in this world. That even though you and I are rebellious against God and even though we have sinned against him, we have violated his values. He gave his only son to die for us, to take our punishment, the punishment we deserve. Jesus rose again and he defeated death and he defeated sin and he offers eternal life to all who will believe in him. For those of us who know him, We look forward to that eternal life and we trust that we have riches and wealth far beyond what anybody could take from us. It's interesting. I saw a story a month or two ago about a man named Bernie Ecclestone. Bernie Ecclestone is the CEO of Formula One Racing. He's British and he is a billionaire. He has many billions of dollars. And he was walking to an event one evening with his girlfriend and he was mugged and beaten, and they took from him about $200,000 in cash and jewelry. Now, I first read that, and I thought, poor guy. Um, 
I would love to have $200,000 to take, right? Now, here's what happened next is uh, Mr. Egglestone took a picture of his beaten face and he sent it to a watch company. He was wearing a watch called a Hublot at the time, and a Hublot watch cost about twenty-five dollars to $30,000, one of the most expensive watches in the world. The watch was taken. So Bernie Ecclestone takes a picture of his face, sends it to Hublot, and writes a note on it, and it says, see what some people will do to get their hands on a Hublot, right? And sends it in. Hublot used it as an advertisement. Now, I read that, and I thought, now, why can Bernie Ecclestone laugh at this situation? Because he has billions of dollars in the bank, right? 200 grand. Paul indicates throughout his letters that no matter what is taken from us by a hostile world, whether it's our prestige, uh, whether it's a job, I had a family member lose a job for his testimony for Christ, whether it's a relationship with others, whether it's our money, in their case, maybe even their lives, no matter what they take, we have an inheritance that is much greater than anything that could be taken. And so we don't need to stress or get angry or worry or take our revenge. We can entrust that to God and know that in Jesus Christ, we have eternal life and riches beyond imagination. And for those who do know Jesus this morning, Simple message is this. Will we consistently extend the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ even to those who don't extend mercy and grace to us for the sake of revealing to the world around us the character of Jesus Christ who is pursuing them, who wants to know them and is offering them eternal life? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. I pray that it would communicate to us the depth of your mercy and grace. Pray that we would come to a place where we consistently extend mercy to others. Thank you, God, for the grace of God given in Jesus Christ. Forgive us for those times we have sought our own revenge. Forgive us for those times that we have staked a claim for our own rights over against those of others. Let us be the kind of people who reflect Jesus, who even though he was reviled, didn't revile in return, who even though he was ultimately put to death, did so in obedience to his Father for our sake and our salvation. Let us reflect him. Lord, use us to do your will. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Have a wonderful week.